Hello and welcome to the Guns on Pegs podcast. I am George Brown and... I'm Chris Horn. And that was a cider. <laughs> I'll get to that in a minute, sorry. <laughs> it's like you've forgotten how to do this. Um, is it the, the fact that the season is finished and you've just lost your mind? Yes, that. It's been very busy. It was a very busy end to the season. We had, we had quite a good end to the season, I feel. I, we've not really spoken about it though. How was yours? Well, we spoke about we spoke about Wales, um, and that was my last day out. So, a pretty good way to finish. But uh, yes, I'm feeling a little bit in at sixes and sevens because, as you know, I've had a hell of a week with sick kids and stuff. So, this being Friday afternoon, um, I've got an enormous glass of whiskey, and I've never needed <laughs> one more in my entire life. And unfortunately, my poor wife has come down with whatever it is that uh, the kids have had all week. So the th- I left the three of them sitting on the sofa, all looking pretty miserable, um, and I've escaped. You're hoping that whiskey does, it's got to do three things then. It's got to be preventative, uh, it's got to kill bug, I mean, it's, and, and it's got to make you feel better by numbing you as well. So, Yes, it's, it's antiseptic and antidepressant. Yes, not officially, I don't <laughs> think, but I'll go with that. No, I don't think doctors <laughs> recommend it, but... Anymore? <laughs> I certainly... <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, but so did you you had another day out, did you, Chris? Before, I, I'm before struggling to remember closed. when we recorded. Yeah, I think we recorded on the Friday. So I had a day out on the Monday, right at the end of the season, down in Devon with some really good mates. That was really lovely way to finish it off. Um, it was one of those, you're slightly there for a job days. So I was going to say, was it one of your, you know, very restrained little walkabout days? Yeah, another one of those, it's in the diary as a walkabout day and was anything but exactly that. <laughs> yeah, I thought it might be. Um, there is a pattern emerging, Chris. There is a pattern emerging. <laughs> I, I, do, I was going to leave it there. I don't think I need to say anything else. Um, let's introduce been, our guest. There's been three of those actually this year, hasn't there? It's quite bad. Um, anyway, yeah. yes. Um, so our guests today are our very first guests from the other side of the Atlantic. I can't believe that, but that's cool. They hail from Pennsylvania and are both lifelong wing shooters. Uh, I love that saying, uh, as they say over there, obviously. So after experiencing a driven shoot in Wales in 2014, they wanted other Americans to experience the same thing. So Delaney and Sons was born and they organise and host sporting experiences for their American clients in the UK, Spain, Morocco. Going to get on to all of that in a minute. So hoot your horns, flash your headlights, stop filling the dishwasher and give a big hand for Liz and Sean Delaney. <laughs> Hello. Hello, everybody. That was a nice introduction. It's an absolute pleasure to have you with us. It's great to have you here. Yeah, like Chris says, it's it's quite surprising to me that we haven't had any Americans on yet. I agree. Um, but it's yeah. very nice that you guys get to be the first. Now, you guys are from Pennsylvania. Now, I've got to confess, my knowledge of, of US geography is pretty poor. I think I can do some of the ones around the outside. But once I go beyond sort of California and Florida, I start to get a little bit desperate. So can you tell us a little bit about Pennsylvania as a state? What's the, what's the landscape like and, and so on? Yeah, I can take this if you like, Liz. I mean, the the landscape itself, um, it's Appalachian Mountains, which back in the time of Pangaea uh, were connected to the mountains in Wales and the Atlas Mountains in Morocco, which is funny that we shoot in Wales and in Morocco. Oh, wow. But not nearly as big. They're they're older. They're more like the the mountains in Wales. Um, It's a very agricultural area. We're really known for our agriculture. And where we sit today uh, for some some maybe better known landmarks, we're three hours west of New York City, 
two hours west of Philadelphia and an hour and a half north of Washington, D.C. So sort of triangulate where we are. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm yeah. With you. It's one of those things when you look at it on a map, you're like, that can't be far away. But yeah, it is. It's a really long state. too. There's always that joke, isn't it? That Brits, you know, think traveling three hours is a really long way and Americans will drive that far for a burrito. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's it's eight hours to go stem to stern in our state and our friend in Wales will be driving to Edinburgh six and a half hours and he has to stop at the surfaces three times. <laughs> it's such a yeah. long drive. Yeah, people know Pennsylvania because it's, it's pretty, it's, it's a very long state and you could be in it for quite some time in your car. Fair enough. That's why American cars have got such big fuel tanks. That, that explains it all. <laughs> Before we started recording, Liz, you were saying that you guys are proper country people. So you are out in the sticks right now. Is that right? We are. Yes, we are. Sean works in Harrisburg, but uh, I work from home and we have a little piece of land right on a creek and right next to state game lands, which is I think different than you guys. You don't have state game lands uh, right. where we have, you know, parceled out woods for hunters to, you know, for public land to go and hunt and fish. Mm. So, so yeah. can I just ask on that? If if um, if anyone can go and access that public land, what happens if like too many people want to go at once? Do you like come across many others when you're out hunting? I mean, because that's obviously could be quite dangerous. Or do you book? How, how do you do it? It's open to any, it's, it's open access. And I think the, the property next to us, it's literally across the creek is maybe 16,000 acres or so. And anyone who has a hunting license, you have to qualify for it, but it costs $26 and 50 cents. And there's a common sense element to it. There's requirements, minimum requirements for blaze orange, just like there are in Scandinavia. So you do get, um, you can see other people and it's just common sense, but it's honestly, it's pretty rare to see someone else. There's a lot of ground. Really? Just for scale, Chris, 16,000 acres is 16 times the size of my dad's farm. <laughs> so you could lose quite a lot of people in that amount of woodland and not see You anyone. can, but obviously like the entrance points to these are off like roads and whatever. So you get a lot of people, I imagine, just end up starting in similar sort of places. But it's just fascinating Correct. that you imagine here, like we're going shooting, but there could be another team out or there could be some other people, you know, stalking over that side. And you just don't even know. It's quite a, it's quite a weird concept, given what we're used to. The other thing, to be honest, is if you are willing to walk more than 500 meters from the entry point, you're never going to see anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so do you guys go out there quite a bit? Just out your back door? We, we, don't, um, we, we don't hear. We actually drive a little further. Um, the one thing that we don't like about this ground is there's a road going through it. And there's always the worry of, you know, the dog running and not coming back, chasing a pheasant. And so we, we're pretty nervous about that. So we actually usually don't use this, this property very much. Um, but there are so many game lands in the state. It's it's really amazing. So when you, you so you mentioned pheasants, so this this game land outside that's like quite near you is a mixture of presumably deer and then small game as well. Yes. So you yes. just can choose what you fancy that day, pop off and do it. Yeah, but we have set seasons for different species. Of course. 
and the manner of take. So for deer season, there's archery, which starts early, um, muzzle loader, you know, and, and then our rifle season actually comes in after the rut. So there's, there's no rifle stalking uh, during the rut. And then we have a late season that, again, is archery and muzzleloader that goes into January. So, and then small games peppered throughout. We have bear here. Uh, there's a lot of trapping in certain areas. So mink and otter, fishers. I've never done that, but. No wonder hunting is bigger in the U.S. than it is in the U.K. <laughs> $26 is pretty cheap to be able to go and do it. <laughs> I mean, just, I don't know why I've not really had this. I've not thought about it that much. I'm obviously, yeah, I'm not very cultured when it comes to this. But anyway, it's fascinating. Well, and I think part of it also is the, especially here in Pennsylvania, I think we have the, one of the highest, highest concentration of public access hunting grounds. Because we also have, we have state forests as well, which are open to hunting. But honestly, I think a lot of the mentality goes back to uh, when we split from Britain and, you know, the only... You can only hunt on the king's ground by invitation, and now it's the people's ground, and you don't need an invitation to do it. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's one of the big differences, isn't it? Um, but I think before we go too much further, um, I've had a hell of a week. So uh, can we please? <laughs> um, who should I start? I'm going to start with Liz. Liz, what's that you're drinking? It's early in the day for you guys, so I'm intrigued. Well, I was up early, and I already had my. Uh green tea my herbal tea and now it's on to uh mud water i don't know it's made with mushrooms oh wow okay <laughs> what have you ever heard of it no <laughs> nope what's uh the, the pertinent question here is what sort of mushroom non-hallucinogenic yeah, disappointing <laughs> lion's mane's in there uh, i i should get the ingredients it's about maybe five different mushrooms and then it's some chai and um there's some black tea for caffeine and yeah so I mix that up with some almond milk, and that's what I drink. Amazing. <laughs> Very different. Yes. Is this is this a big drink? Like, is this a a big well known drink, or is this just something that you like? It's well, I never drank coffee, and tea just doesn't really do it for me so much. I mean, I I like tea, but uh, Sean drinks it more than I do. I um, so this gives me a little caffeine plus. I mean, I'm, I fall for everything. So anything that's like health and wellness, I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good opportunity, this, for me to say that um, after the last episode where I was talking about data for the um, Desert Island shooting bit, um, some of our loyal listeners have gone back and they've started a spreadsheet and they're recording all of the the different categories of uh, what of Desert Island uh, shooting well, different species, who's going, who's using the time machine, who's not. And they've also started, they've done all of that. And now they've moved on to what's that you're drinking in the catalog of all the drinks as well. So I've said that you're I've said joking. they've only got to keep it going for another 25 <laughs> episodes or so. And then for the 100th episode, we will do uh, a big review on all of those things so yeah it's an incredible spreadsheet you, will you do a graph will it be graph well i think yeah we might have to yeah. do like a live <laughs> show with um with powerpoint <laughs> or, or in the hundredth show have every single drink that you had in all of the other episodes oh my god and... um yeah okay <laughs> but yes they're going to be very excited about your drink list because it will be a it'll be a brand new one to go <laughs> in the spreadsheet they'll be thrilled yeah m-u-d-w-r-t-r Mud uh, okay. water. Ah, 
like clever classic modern one remove all the vowels like a techie business i like it yeah very nice i did not get paid to say that (laughs) (laughs) right and sean what have you got mine isn't nearly that unique um i'm having tea it's a 50 50 blend of a strong breakfast tea and an earl gray very nice. And you, you're a regular tea drinker, are you? I am. I uh, I used to be a heavy coffee drinker, and I stopped probably three or four years ago. It really didn't didn't make my, my tummy feel very good and really switched to, to tea. So, what, what brand is that? Fortnum & Mason. Uh, the correct brand. <laughs> <laughs> I drink nothing else. Uh, we stock up. Duty-free. Duty-free. <laughs> oh, is it really? We have those big bags yeah. as we're getting on the plane of the Fort Emma Mason. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite funny because um, literally just before we started recording, uh, I was just reading through like what, what's going to happen. And I was sitting there thinking, this is ridiculous. I've got a mug of Earl Grey and a slice of lemon drizzle cake, and I couldn't be more British at like 4 p.m. in the afternoon. I was like, it's not an unintended, complete cliche going on here. But anyway, they're finished. And uh, I have replaced it with uh, Jake's Cider. So Jake's Cider is made by the vineyard, which is just behind our house, uh, Hush Heath or Balfour. Balfour Winery, as some people would have seen, that's on the label. They don't mention Hush Heath anywhere, really. Uh, and they've gone and started producing a cider because other than grapes around us, it's loads of apples. Well, was until they started getting torn up because everyone realised it's not profitable to grow apples anymore. And this one is lovely, made with Cox Bramley and Egremont Russet. Have you ever heard of an Egremont Russet apple? I've heard of a Russet, but not an Egremont Russet. Exactly. That's what I thought. Yeah. Russet, russet apple juice, by the way, if you can get your hands on it, specifically russet apple juice is, I think, the best apple juice going. Most people drink cock. Very nice. And tell us about this cider then. What's the flavor profile? Uh, I'm not that educated, George. It's uh, dry it's, or sweet. Yeah. So it's quite dry, actually. Um, mm. Yeah. It's cider. I mean, it tastes like a lot of the others, <laughs> if I'm honest. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Nice enough. Uh, but because it's only a little can, I've also got a can of the Jake's Lager sitting outside the window. So when I get thirsty, I'll go to my outside fridge, uh, hand out the window, and Perfect. I'll grab that. Very good. George, which whiskey did you pour a large amount of? Well, I had planned, in honour of the fact that we had our first American guests, to go and get some Tennessee whiskey or something like that. But what with uh, all the illness and everything else going on, I have... Although I have been to the shops, it's always been for uh, cowpole and cough linctus and stuff like that. And it's just every time I failed. So I'm on my fail safe, which is an Abelau Speyside whiskey. And it's a nice comfort blanket for me. And I'm very happy with it. But I promise that for the next episode, I will have Tennessee whiskey. Just a quick one here then for our podcast data analysts. Um, I'd like a fine for George for the number of times that he's had this this whiskey on the podcast. Uh, I'll come up with it uh, and execute that fine uh, because it's quite a large number, George. So I'm just hoping if I say Abelau whiskey often enough, they'll send me some. They should have a Google alert set up. They should be getting this stuff. 
Right, George. Yes. So, guys, what we like to do to get the ball rolling in the podcast is to turn to our post bag. And we always begin, as you know, with a section called Whose Bird Is It Anyway? Which is where we ask our listeners to send in their shooting quandaries and queries and dilemmas. And we do our level best to resolve them. This episode's Whose Bird Is It Anyway? submission comes from somebody who emailed pod at guns on pegs. And I have decided to call Robespierre. And Robespierre has written... (laughs) I wanted to get your opinion on a tricky situation I experienced towards the end of the season just gone. I had booked a smallish partridge day up in the fens on a shoot that was new to me and that seemed to be more used to hosting larger days. It was late in the season and the wind had started to whip up and so I was expecting a relatively lean day with some challenging birds moving about in the gusts. When I arrived I met a chap, let's call him Mike, in the yard organising things. I introduced myself and Mike pointed me inside for a cup of tea and a bacon roll with the other guns. Mike joined us shortly afterwards in the gunroom and was introduced formally by the host as he would be looking after us on the day. The first drive was a short walk from the farm buildings and Mike led the guns down, showed us out to the pegs, tweaked to the peg positions owing to the wind and recent experience of the drive and started the beaters off. It was a great first drive and Mike clearly knew his stuff. The day progressed in a similar fashion, Mike driving the gun bus to the remaining drives, pegging us out so as to take into account the conditions, and even deciding to add in a couple of extra drives when two early drives proved less fruitful than he was happy with. After the final drive, the guns agreed that it had been a wonderful day of shooting, and that a generous tip to the keeper would be appropriate. So back in the gunroom for a cup of tea before departure, I approached Mike in the traditional way to pass on my appreciation. Not me, Mike said, Dave's the keeper. He pointed out Dave, someone I had never seen before, who took my tip good-naturedly and handed over my birds. So my conundrum is this. I know that organising a shoot is a team effort. I know that Dave is probably responsible for the whole shebang and has better things to do than run a small day towards the end of the season. And I know that Mike will probably see some of that tip behind the scenes. But Mike was our keeper on that day. Mike made the day the fantastic experience that it was, and Mike was the one that deserved my and the other gun's thanks. What should I have done? Insist upon Mike getting the tip? Unevenly split the tip? Organise a revolt? It's an interesting one, this. I'm actually pleased this has come up. It's quite a niche point, but this happens a lot, I reckon. And this, we get this a lot from, from art. They don't know who to tip, so yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. We help them figure it out what do you guys think have you when you've been on days do you often find that this keeper who appears at the end of the day is someone you've literally not seen until that point correct yeah yes i'll sometimes say to a mic i'll say point out the gamekeeper to me you know because i know that they're usually in the beating line they're somewhere hidden they're usually nervous so i i see how they maybe don't want to interact because they have the the whole day on their mind. They want it to go well and they maybe don't want to be distracted. So I'll just say, hey, can you point them out? And I'll tell our, our guns to just keep your money in your pocket. I'll tell you who to give it to. Mm. The other thing is that, that for all you know, you were dealing with the owner all day. Mm. You know, I know we've shot at the same place where you guys did a Guns on Pegs like season shoot a couple of years ago in Herefordshire. Oh yes, yeah. Okay. Where the owner, the owner put there were no pegs. The owner would put you on the pegs. Roger. Roger. Yeah. You know, which was pretty unique in our experience, but it's pretty unique. Full stop. 
Yeah, but we knew he was the owner, so we you know never think of of slipping slipping him a gratuity. But I mean, I don't know. We do see it, and the other thing is, Robespierre is perfectly welcome to slip someone else a little bit additional. And be like, hey, you did a great job. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Yeah. So I, it seems to me that maybe we've got a shoot captain gamekeeper situation here. That Mike is the shoot captain, shoot manager, and he employs Dave, the keeper. And as you say, Liz, Dave is perhaps a bit shy, always out dogging in and blanking bits in in the morning. So wasn't around in the morning to be introduced. And so he's been, you know, Dave has been the one who's been legging it about the countryside, making sure that the day goes smoothly. And and Mike's been there as the the host and the face of the shoot and making sure that everybody's cheerful and cheery. Meanwhile, Dave's doing all the hard work in the background. That's that's my analysis of this situation. Yeah, I'm with you entirely on this. I think there's when you actually look at what he's, you think back to what he was saying, he's been driving the bus, placing the pegs out. Fine, he's moved a bit some people because of the wind. I mean, when you summarise sort of the hosting part, it's it's pretty easy compared to what the keeper's been up to. And that's why the keeper gets the tip, because the day is absolutely critical upon the keeper, not the guy placing the guns and driving a gun bus. To be honest, most of us could do that with a bit of a guess, uh, as long as you know loosely where you're going. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's not it's not that, you know, you're not really congratulating him that much for that. He's probably been on a walkie talkie, maybe even talking to Dave, you know, so it could have been Dave's decisions the whole time. It's just Mike is is telling the guns mike is the mouthpiece yeah it's front of house yeah exactly and it, and yeah dave you probably said uh move the guns around for this drive we're, we're, we're driving this one slightly differently because of the wind just stick them over there and make sure that one's on the hedge type thing mm-hmm. i mean i'm guessing in normal scenarios mike's definitely not the one that needs a tip maybe there's a scenario where the mics of this world have really like done a mega job for a day when it's like been super tough or whatever and maybe this chap felt that's that's one of those days and do you know what Mike needs a bit of a tip but I think the way he rounded it up I think his thought might be slightly misplaced there with this one it's funny isn't it the way that we tip the keeper but not the shoot captain when there is a distinction between those two is that a bit of feudalism creeping in that the it's sort of assumed that the bloke who's going around with you putting on your pegs and such like is is a gent and therefore doesn't need a tip is, is that what's happening Definitely. That's where it's come from. Yeah, I think it must be. It's funny that, isn't it? Yeah, and I think there's another element too. I mean, this goes back to the idea of if Mike was actually the owner, but you know, if you know, I was always taught that if you're if you're at a at a bar, you know, you tip the bartender, but if the owner is tending bar, you do not tip her or him. Mm. <laughs> this is it. Because what meager profit there is, they're enjoying, not not the bartender. I I want I want someone to try and tip a titled duke or lord on a shoot at the end of the day once and see what happens. Uh, most of the aristocrats I know would definitely trouser your money. That's how you get to be an aristocrat. <laughs> <laughs> so that so that this this is for you and just like a like a gentle ten quid or something just for for driving the gun bus. Make it a fiver. <laughs> And there you are. That's it. You won't be back. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe a, like, as a, a tactical, if Robespierre is you know, going back to this, this shoot or is worried about encountering this situation in the future, maybe have a, a stash gift 
in your car, you know, a bottle of Aberlore maybe, or Aberfeldy, that if you're in this situation, you can just go and grab it and be like, hey, great day. Thanks a lot. And that's different than a tenor. Yes, you're right. That is it. That's what gifts are for. Good connection, Nate, though. That's the the obvious (laughs) answer. So talk to me about tipping and this sort of thing when it comes to hunting over in the US. Is this something that ever occurs? I mean, obviously, you're often out on your own uh, or when you're going to some of these ranches and stuff that are quite sort of sophisticated setups, does that occur there? It does. And, you know, we belong to a hunting club down in northern Maryland and we do an end of year Christmas tip for the head keeper right. who, who manages the property and all of the members kick in whatever they want to. And that's his bonus. I mean, if you're out on state game lands, there's really not much you can you won't see anybody out yeah, there, exactly. but um, but yeah, it at other private places you would, um, yeah, you'd give something. Well, like in Georgia last week, how did that work? Oh yeah, we were in Georgia last week, and the guides who took us quail hunting that were out with us for the whole day, uh, we gave them cash at the end of the day. So yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and and they're they're the mics of this situation because they're not right. necessarily gamekeeping. Correct. And they're not they're the, dog handlers. And they're not the owners. So, yeah. Yeah. Very cool. interesting. Good. Well, I think we've solved that. Yeah. So he said, what should I have done? And as Sean perfectly put it, give him a bottle of whiskey. That's what you should have done. Yeah. We've got an unpopular opinion that from some... Oh, hold on. No, no. Before I go any further, Robespierre. George? Uh, well, he was a very significant figure in the French Revolution. So I thought seeing as our correspondent was keen on organizing a revolt, that was an appropriate name. Uh, Maximilian Robespierre, if you would like to know. I think he ended up getting his head cut off, but then nearly everybody did. So I don't know if that's a notable thing or not. (laughs) I was about to say, yeah. (laughs) So we have an unpopular opinion here from someone that George has called Hansi, who says, I trust you both well and had a good season. After more quiet days than I would like this season, when I seem to be a regular spectator to my friends on other pegs, seemingly blazing away while I, whilst I watch birds flush and curl away from where I happen to be positioned, I wanted to pose the question to you on how you approach the all-important draw. Do you hang back politely to allow others to draw first, ladies first, of course, or do you jump in like the usual suspect who is always first up to the tray of nips or who jostles the other guns to be strategically positioned next to the host in order to get first pick. Do you pick from the middle, the left or the right? (laughs) I reflect back to when I was a lad and remembering being much luckier with my peg draws. These days, the rule of thumb is that I'm pretty crap at it. And I wondered, is there a strategy deployed by either of you which could be put to the test next season? (laughs) Oh dear, he's really down in the dumps, isn't he? Like, I've... I've tried everything. It's not working. I'm going to email a podcast and ask, do you cross your legs, your fingers? So I guess Poor he's guy. superstitious. Could we say he might be superstitious? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. Well, I always don't want a good peg on my first draw. I want to be on the outside for the first drive and then be kind of situated more in the middle for the second and third drives but you just don't know you don't know a lot depends on whether you know the shoot right because some shoots you go to if you go to the same place quite frequently you know that if you draw say peg two that means that for the for the best drive of the day you're going to be at six or whatever 
And therefore, you know, first of all, first thing in the morning that you've got a pretty good day ahead of you, or as it might be, that you're going to be out of it the whole day. But on a new shoot, you just, you ha- that you've never been to before, you haven't the faintest idea what the peg draw means. It could mean anything. And, you know, that even if you if, even if you think, well, I'm going to be one, then seven, um, you know, you don't know if that means that you're in a good place or not, because it might be that on this particular drive with the wind in that particular direction, number seven is actually the hot seat. Yeah, there's I just don't I, think there's any way of gaming it at all. <laughs> no, of course there isn't. It's a complete game of luck. <laughs> Having said that, it is luck. And personally, I always go last. But there could be another environmental issue going on like perhaps Hansy never wears his shooting jacket he has a vest and white tattersall and he's going <laughs> waving his arms and he looks like a flanker and the birds are going away from should, him should we beat Hansy up while he's maybe, down maybe he's ginger <laughs> yeah like maybe he uh dresses wrong he needs to cut his hair he, he needs to all sorts of stuff Hansy look in the mirror Probably got pink garters on. That's probably the problem. <laughs> well, he will do now. We're not helping his case at all, are we? Well, I think that before he sets out for the day, he needs to ask the universe for some lucky draws. How's see, that? Perhaps drink some mushroom tea. <laughs> Just put it out there. Be positive. Yeah, drink some mushroom tea. Put it out there. Say, you know, give me a great egg today, universe. I See mean, what it, happens. Okay. <laughs> He's obviously really struggling. Um, <laughs> I okay, do feel the, for the, him. the thing is though over one's shooting lifetime this absolutely balances itself out oh so do you think maybe because <laughs> maybe because he had a good peg draws when he was younger now it's yeah. balancing it out the universe yeah, so, is exacting revenge upon him for having all his luck <laughs> when he was 25 <laughs> so so maybe like for most people it balances itself, itself out over one season right but if you had a particularly bad season next year you know it's just one of those ones he got you remember oh, i had a really good few days there this guy just had 10 years on the trot of luck and is now having 10 years on the bounce of bad luck <laughs> going back to my prior comment he could keep a bottle of Aberlore <laughs> in his trunk and if he sees his friend got pegged three he said look i'll trade you <laughs> and here's a that's, gift for but you the thing is if you're in this state of mind that's never a good idea because that will end up being the good peg and you'll regret it forever i remember my dad my dad always used to do this with True. my grandpa being like oh look grandpa it's, it's quite a long way to walk to that peg it's up a hill or whatever um why don't why don't i take that because i'm in the middle of the line and then obviously with the wind everything went over dad on grandpa's peg and it's it's a classic you just never ever switch pegs <laughs> we've had that happen we had that exact same thing happen and and Jack ended up having the best peg of his entire life and he had been shooting for 20 years and he like wrote me the check to come back the following year like that day just because he switched and it went in his way yeah well someone asked him to switch so he it wasn't even his idea to switch and he just got lucky with the peg we took a day the one that we mentioned earlier that George and I were on and I just stood on on the end of the line each drive and well we did and we switched uh so one 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 driver was on the left end and the other driver on the right end just for a bit of variation um i absolutely was in the best spot pretty much every time um <laughs> it's one of those things january it really doesn't matter where you are and even if you think you know no one really does because all sorts of things are going to happen uh, so I think you can really get hung up on the peg draw. I also think you can think other people's pegs are better than yours quite quickly without 
maybe there actually being the case. I mean, I spent quite a lot of time in Wales going, thank God I'm not underneath that one. <laughs> it's too far away. I've got a bit of advice. So next year, let someone else draw your peg for you every time. See what happens. Yeah, or go, or go last. And then if you have a really good year, it's definitely you, you're cursed. And that's it, you know? Well, I, I don't know if I have a strategy. I just sort of, you know, when it gets offered to me, I just take a take one. Um, I probably don't go for the one on the end, just out of superstition. Let's take one from the middle. Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I always take one from in the bunch that hasn't been picked, if I'm at that point. Oh, so so if you've got sort of a four and a two, you'll go for the four. Yeah. It makes no difference, though. Don't, it makes no difference. Absolutely no idea why. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, unless you're the one that's pouring the whiskey into the shot glass and you can kind of see the number on the bottom of the ah, shot glass. I've definitely been on shoots where they where instead of being like a little peg or a stick or whatever, they do, they do it in the drinks uh, and they don't use slow gin and you can definitely yeah. see through at a certain angle. But you end up, you sort of stare <laughs> for a little bit and you're like, what am I staring for? A, I look like an idiot. I'm going to get rumbled and... Um, it's going to take me so long to read upside down numbers <laughs> through through liquid, yeah. Because mm-hmm. six and nine very yes, different. Is, yeah, <laughs> and you, every time someone pulls it out, is that six? Or is that nine? And it's got a little line underneath it. But everyone asks every time anyway. Yeah, <laughs> because they don't want nine. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it, when you think about all of this in too much detail? It all feels very ridiculous, and especially talking to a couple of people who are not from these parts it might i think maybe we'll talk about this a bit later on actually so i won't uh, ask you to comment now but um it it is all very very weird but yes this uh, we've got this in unpopular opinions i guess the unpopular opinion we're trying to decide on is um you should try and game the peg draw i think we're all agreed that that is not a good idea yeah you shouldn't think about it shouldn't worry about it Shouldn't be emailing podcasts to <laughs> worry about your depression and whatever else has occurred. Uh, <laughs> so unpopular. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm glad he did. Yeah. No one's ever thought about that exact moment on a shoot day for the two seconds where you pull something out of a leather slip. It's, we never discussed it, but great. Good. Right. So now we're moving on to our brand new feature. Which, um, in honour of the email that uh, inspired it, I've decided to call Timbuk2, Timbuk3. And this one comes from somebody I have named Pavel, who says, I'd like to nominate a drive name and the reason it has been so dubbed. Some good shooting friends and I learnt to cut our teeth rough shooting on an Essex arable farm. Regularly, we would walk miles for a modest mixed bag of wild birds, mainly pheasant, duck and pest species, and largely lured in from neighbouring shoots. The point being, we had to work very hard for a few humble birds to adorn our pot. In the early days, we were promised a walk with the farmer to determine the boundaries and where we could or could not shoot. Naturally, this never took place. We found ourselves having to work this out solo. Being mainly walked up rough shooting, it's perhaps more accurate to refer to the drive as a beat. It's a small field comprising patches of long grass and scrub. Having walked through it a few times previously with success, we quickly worked out it was a magnet to hunkered down pheasants tempting to lads who were willing to walk miles for a solitary shot or two. The naming day in question, we lined up to push the drive through in our customary line of walked up guns. A handful of pheasants were quickly flushed, some shot, and we were pleased at how it worked out, probably tripling our bag from the previous five miles walked. 
However, our excitement soon became immediate concern. There was an audible shout followed by inaudible and unspeakable threats and then silence. We knew we'd messed up. Cue an immediate telephone call from our angry farmer friend stating that we had in fact shot on a neighbouring farmer's field and managed to piss off our farmer friend's dear acquaintance. The recommended course of action was this. 1. Stop shooting immediately. 2. Vacate the field in question. 3. Go to the nearest shop, buy some nice wine and practice our apologetic faces. And finally, go straight to the proprietor's house adorned with sympathy gifts and say sorry. Needless to say, the advice was followed to the letter. The proprietor was grateful for our prompt action and clear remorse. She was relieved that we were not unsavouries and were shooting with her neighbour's permission. It's safe to say that we never stepped foot in that field again, despite knowing full well it was a small bag filler. From that day on, it has been colloquially dubbed Poland, a tiny neighbour who was attacked through no fault of its own, resulting in a larger and unintended conflict. (laughs) That's pretty good. That's good. (laughs) That's good. So they've they've got a name to drive that's not even a driver. Like yeah, it's I I I'm convinced that this feature is going to be my favorite feature of all time. I just think that there's <laughs> there's so many people out there with stories like that, and people are endlessly creative, and that's you know, I can't see myself having come up with that in a million years. <laughs> that is brilliant. I really want to know if they ever did it again. I don't I think, think so. <laughs> they should have said, "Do you mind if we shoot it?" Well, that's it. That that and the fact that if it costs them uh, an, an abala, right, uh, then if it was their small bag filler for the day, that's a pretty effective, you know, reward. How, how often is it worth taking the risk and just doing it, knocking up on the door? It's your abala. Sorry about that again. Could you figure out when they're on vacation? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe send them on vacation. Yes. And then. <laughs> I think they call that poaching, even if they're not there. <laughs> Yeah, go to prison for that in the states <laughs> detail sean detail um exactly i've never heard of a name drive that's not even a drive and just someone else's land i like it good right so i um there'll be more of those i've got more lined up for future episodes already so um they're gonna be fun back to the bit of public pu- public hunting ground surely you name the patches there like surely these big swathes of land, you say, oh, we're going to do X block or whatever, and like these all end up becoming named. Does happen. Um, more often, I see that it happens with deer drives. And, you know, I mean, we have several named drives, you know, where, where we hunt deer, mainly in Pennsylvania. And, you know, there's uh, the J-hook drive. And it's called the J-hook because the standards are actually in a J, you know, so, and then generally any place you find a bunch of grouse is called the honey hole. And that's, that's the only name that anyone ever uses for a good covert of grass ground. And they, no. and they don't share that. They don't share that location at all. <laughs> it's so different, but so cool. Well, you guys have people walking on your land, right? I mean, you have it's, it's completely opposite, you know, private land versus public. George's neighbours have probably got a drive called Poland that's actually his. <laughs> they probably do, actually. Or they used to until they put houses on it. We actually have an interesting right to roam in Pennsylvania. And I'm not sure if it's unique to Pennsylvania, but it probably is. And if you if you own, you know, a decent sized patch of ground, it is assumed that someone with a hunting license is allowed to hunt on your property unless you post it to tell them that they can't. To me, is totally against our our private property concepts here in the States, but 
it is a it's a little version of right to roam, and you have to put placards on your property boundary. You know, no trespassing, no hunting. Otherwise, it's assumed that someone can come on your property to hunt. And if you've got five thousand acres, that's a lot of placards. Yes. The other thing that we have, um, which I think is really good in Pennsylvania, if you know, well, we have a trout stream running through our property, and if we give someone permission to fish our ground, we have what's called recreational tort immunity. And if that person falls off the bank, cracks their head open, they can't come back and sue us for having an attractive nuisance because we're not charging. If we charge them, then we better have insurance. Uh, And am I right in saying that you can go up any waterway that that's that's effectively public land the middle of the river so you can fish anywhere doesn't matter if it's flowing through somebody else's property that is correct yeah it's the mean high water mark yeah i thought so yeah there's a lot of cooler things about this than there are over here isn't there i suppose it depends if you're the duke of westminster or not because it depends how much land you own and how much water right so robespierre hansi Pavel and now you guys, Sean and Liz, are the newest members of the Most Noble Order of the Garters and will very soon in receipt of the much-admired Guns on Pegs podcast, Shooting Sock Garters. If you too have got a shooting confession, quandary or a query that you'd like us and our guests to help you with, uh, or if you've got an unpopular opinion or you'd like to tell us about a drive with a particularly good name and you would like a set of garters, drop us an email to pod at gunsonpegs.com. So guys, I wanted to ask you... um, 2014 Sean you're shooting in Wales and that experience makes you think yup I need to start a business is that what happened tell us about the day that you were on that that sparked all of this off actually I I had to go work in London half the time Liz Liz was there for the whole week but what sparked it for me really was this little shoot uh, local syndicate shoot 50 bird day no longer no longer in existence but i was there that day and it was absolutely fantastic i i shot my first driven bird standing in the middle of a herd of cattle um i'm not sure who was more scared me or them um and that was it oh and i got a woodcock that day uh which was pretty special so yeah we just really didn't look back after that what do you think liz yeah, I Sean was the one that was really into guns. I was more into I can't wait to go somewhere overseas, kind of new clothing to wear and uh meet people we hadn't met before and be in a cute little town. So I was more interested in the whole tradition and the community of it uh and less about the guns. I think I was stuffing for you, Sean, and you handed me the gun on one drive, and I just looked at the people in front of me, the beaters, and said, uh, and just handed the back the gun back to Sean. So, <laughs> but I just loved the people, and um, yeah, it was something that that both of us really could see ourselves doing and taking people to experience you know, the fun and the camaraderie that we saw. That's so cool. It's and it's so. What was it that brought you over in the first place? What? How did you end up shooting here? I had a real interest in vintage guns, and 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 actually, 
neither Liz nor I grew up hunting. I didn't start hunting until high school, really, when I was about 16. Um, I fished from a very early age, but I, but I really got into vintage British shotguns. And there was a gentleman from whom I'd purchased a couple out in Washington State, Oregon. He's in Oregon. And he organized a trip every year to Wales. His wife is Welsh. And he invited us along. And long story short, he, he uh, was getting older and wasn't going to be doing this annual trip with his friends anymore. And he made introductions for us. And our original plan was to, you know, go for one week a year and uh, try to take some friends and maybe get our shooting paid for. And um, fast forward, actually, not that many years. And uh, it's nine, 10 or 11 weeks a year now that we're we're hosting trips so and and is that because when you wow. when you went back and told your friends about it everyone was like no, wow none I of my friends one of my friends came and did a McNabb with me this year <laughs> the rest of them <laughs> think we're crazy <laughs> I just don't get it. yeah it's just it's just different i think uh rough shooting is more popular here we call it walked up and um and our friends, you, you mean, it does cost money. It, it takes time. And, you know, at our age, money's not just grown on trees. And, and uh, you know, we don't have a lot of time because maybe we have young kids. So we really, our friends weren't the ones that were coming. And, uh, and we had to go out there and search for um, people who, who had the time and had the money to come overseas with us, which we found six people our first year and then it just they came back they they wanted to go again even if they said it was a bucket list they came oh i'm just going to do this once they loved it and so then they returned and then we had they told people so then and then we had new people it just it just blew up really i I remember years ago trying to work out how many americans come across for the season at some point and we reckon well we got to about two thousand. There's not that many when you think about it, considering mm-hmm. how many people know about it, talk about it, love some of the British brands. Obviously, the gun making is, is what makes it so synonymous, mm-hmm. I believe. And there's so many people. The gun collecting stuff, you've already mentioned it, Sean. <clears throat> that that I find it's it's so much bigger across your side than it is here. It is. It's It really is a thing. And, and a lot of our our guests are, you know, big fans of the vintage or modern British doubles and that's sort of their little gateway into what we do because they want to experience the sport that helped develop the or did develop the guns so so, so I was going to ask if there is something that that unifies your clients if there's a kind of that you can that you can say you know 90% of our clients are in uh, into it because of x or y and it sounds like the guns might be the the way in for a lot of them Downton Abbey and the Crown helped. (laughs) (laughs) That did help a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, there's shooting in both of them, isn't there? Yeah. So does that perk people's interest? And when you then mention it, they're like, oh, you mean like that? And you're like, yep. Well, and there's a certain element of, you know, they've invested in this gun or these guns. They want to use them for what they were designed for. And I think that's part of it. The other thing that's the common draw for all of them is Liz, really. She's really good at putting groups of people together. And I think that's a big part of what brings people back. They like the people that they went with. 
they make friendships that really last and extend way beyond shooting. Um, it, it's really interesting. I mean, the trip that Liz did last week in Georgia is is for Quail is an annual alumni get together. So it's it's almost entirely Delaney and Sons guests who've been with us overseas. And then it's a way for everyone to get together at the end of the season. Oh, that's that's cool. a very cool idea. So are you, because of this sort of Downton Crown influence, are you taking days at like High Clear and places like that just to literally go back? Or is it just very much places that you know? And We, we only go, well, we, if, if it's a place that we don't know, we've got actually two guys who are with us from the beginning, uh, both from Wales, Kevin and JTC. And as we have grown uh we'll get their opinion but actually they'll go and check out shoots for us um and gratuitous plug we really relied very heavily and still do on guns on pegs uh to find new shoots i mean as we grew like let's say we get invited uh to shropshire um roger Mm. where where we have both shot his father-in-law has an estate up in shropshire and he reached out to liz a few years ago and you know, you've got to come, and he, he had some other places, but then to fill in the gaps, you get on Guns and Pegs, and you figure out how far it is from mm. where we stay, and then Kevin or JTC goes and checks it out. But uh, it's a really long way of answering your question. No, we don't go to like High Claire just so people have that experience. We really go for the quality shooting. Do they ask for it? A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when so it's the guns and Downton and the Crown that get people excited in the first place. But then when they've come over, what is it that they talk about as being the the things that they that make it memorable for them? What is it that that makes the trip for them? That makes them want to come back? Apart from Liz's excellent party management and hosting. I used to be a camp counselor, so uh, <laughs> I know how to. I know how to run a big group, but you know, I always say to people, they do think about the birds because they are wing shooters. It, but when you get there, it's not at the, they are thinking about the birds, but when you're there, it's really not the birds. It's everybody in a line. You're looking down at your friends shooting. Uh, you've made some new friends. It's the, uh, it's the tradition of the day I think that keeps them coming back because it's so different than it is here in the States. And then sitting around the fire at night, just talking about the day, what a good peg, you know, what a good shot that was, how one bird came over and everybody was looking at you and you actually hit it. <laughs> and then like, oh, I was scared. I thought I wasn't going to hit it. And I did. So it's the stories and then the friendships that are made. And then really uh, kept throughout the season and throughout the year. And uh, even people will travel again with the same group they went with the first time. So uh, it's it's really everything. It is the fun. I mean, we do have a really fun time and um, and the ease of it, too, because we really just try to make it as easy as possible because it is so different that they might not know you know what to expect so we really take that fear of the unknown out so so talking about differences then what are the things that confuse people who've never done driven shooting the most when they come over here obviously you're giving them advice i imagine you're prepping them right this is what's going to happen these sorts of things but what are the bits that like every time they're like they're baffled by who do i tip why do you wear those clothes (laughs) (laughs) 
Do I really need flashers? Do I have to wear the, the briefs? And, you know, we say no. We say you, you you don't have to. You don't have to dress up. Don't break the bank. This might not be something that you want to continue doing. I mean, you don't know. They, I'd say nine and a half out of 10. Everybody does like to continue. But yeah, you don't have to. They get there and they say, oh, I wish I would have bought the breeks. That looks really, I don't like stuffing my pants down into these boots. You know, so yeah, so we just want to make it as easy as possible. But they do, they do ask about the clothing. That's the first thing. Who to tip? You know, what the day is going to be like? Because ninety percent of this podcast is about you know the weird intricacies of shooting in the UK. So I can imagine that for someone coming to it fresh, who's not familiar with all of it and is used to a completely different hunting culture. It can be, I'd imagine, quite a daunting thing, like standing on that peg on the first day in your brand new breeks with the gun that was that you bought and now have bought this incredibly expensive trip to come to the UK to sort of honour the gun. And you're, st- I, I can imagine that, like, do you give people like a big old briefing document about tipping and clothing? And I was going to say, you know, don't worry, the beaters yes. will be in front of you. Just try not to shoot them, and it'll be fine. <laughs> George, I, I feel I feel like we just need to produce like a a little podcast between you and I, just chatting about what to expect when you get here, and then we could just give it. They could just listen to it on the car on the way. That'd be perfect. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's a long flight from the states. I mean, you could listen to a lot of episodes of the podcast on the airplane. <laughs> <laughs> they start they start asking questions right away, even before they book with us. They'll ask a lot of questions, and um, and uh, yeah, I say. Every month you're going to be hearing from me. And sometimes people say, oh, my gosh, you just sent me an email. With, I, I had that question in my head this morning. And here comes an email from you answering it. So uh, we, I do tend to answer every little thing. And if, I, if they ask a question, I write it down because I think I have everything under, you know, in the email. But then there's always a question someone asks that I haven't thought of. The other thing that we do um, that I think is helpful, even for people who've done it before, is we do sort of a graduated week. So we start with the smaller bag, end with a bigger bag. If it's a if really a newbie trip, we will we will start with a day of Clay's instruction. Not even a simulated day, just at a tower practicing. And yeah. because yeah. you know you have the the guy or gal who has the gun, has the outfit, paid all the money to go, and we stick them at like North Moulton or Briggins on Monday for a 300 bird day. And they're going to be crying at the end. And yeah, it just, ouch. Yeah. We don't want to demoralize people. Do they, and, and also I'm assuming, cause you're going to be flying into London pretty much all the time. I expect, uh, are you going via the gun shops in London before you do anything else as well? Yeah. Yeah. If people come early, we'll send them to the shops and, uh, and, and meet, you know, go do a tour of the long room, that kind of thing, which, which people really enjoy. But, uh, and yeah, we fly into Heathrow, Edinburgh, uh, Madrid, or Marrakesh. And are there particular regions that people particularly want to go to? There's, for some reason, it's in my head that people want to go to Scotland. Is that true? Because a, a lot of people in the States are proud of their heritage. Although, interestingly, more often if it's Irish or Scottish than if it's English. Um, which I think is probably a cultural thing, but like <laughs> I think, like people people who have Scottish heritage are going to want to go to Scotland. Is that right? Everybody right. wants to go to Scotland. Yeah. It is. I'd say it's our number yeah. one inquiry. Uh, when we talk to people. Yeah, 
Yeah. I read the other day there's more people of Irish descent in New York than there are in Dublin. I can believe it. <laughs> That's because they're all here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is it grouse that people that people are really excited by, or McNabs, or is it? You know, they just want the the experience and they don't particularly mind what the quarry is. They they want to go to Scotland, um, especially if it's someone new. We 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 steer them towards, you know, a regular pheasant partridge shoot uh, with a little bit of duck, and and we've tried grouse in Scotland, and uh, we've we've moved to Yorkshire now just on the basis of consistency. Yeah, I was going to uh, say yeah. But you know, we had Liz had a conversation not too long ago with a guy who really wants to go grouse shooting, driven grouse shooting. But it has to be in Scotland, and you know it's sort of a how long can you wait for a good season? So, I I, I must say, uh, I mean, from a bit of public land hunting to driven grouse shooting in Yorkshire, that like they are worlds apart, right? That must be mind blowing <laughs> if that's your first time like seeing anything like it. I mean, obviously, for a lot of us, like we when we get to it once in a blue moon, and some of us like wait forever to, you know, and it's still mind blowing. But it's quite close to sort of other aspects of driven shooting, like some hedge hopping partridges or something. But if you're not doing driven stuff, and then you come over and you're straight into driven grouse, that must be like. I don't know. I was yeah. talking to Sean about this. As you know, we are used to shooting kind of uh, walked up is not shooting up it's shooting kind of more parallel i suppose yeah and you shoot yeah. behind and growl so that's that's uh, very similar. so that's actually almost the same yeah true yeah. yeah yeah so i don't know we'll see we i think we might be um getting some some people to that have never done driven to come and do grouse first so i'll ask so the question i've really dying to ask which are the bits of us hunting culture that we are missing that we should be adopting. Blaze orange. I've got blaze orange in my jacket already. It just doesn't make much for an appearance. <laughs> Camouflage. <laughs> Not camouflage. See, your tweed is like our camouflage. Yeah. 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 I think embrace rough shooting more. I mean, you can go and have a great day in the Lammer mirrors and have five, six, or seven different species. You're not spending a lot of money. You can go with a couple of your friends, watch the dogs work. It's a fantastic day. And, you know, we're surprising. We have so much fun with the quail hunting. And and Simon and Sarah just got back from wild quail hunting in Texas and had a blast. And almost universally, when I try to get our friends in Britain to come over here to do rough shooting, I would never do that. I could just go down to such and such a state and work my dog and do a little, do a little boundary day. And that's fine. It's the same thing. And it's not, it's, 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 it'd be nice if, if that was embraced more. I want to talk about quail because mm. it's high up on my bucket list. Tell me about the, the quail hunting in Georgia, because I've seen the odd video it just seems to have, it seems to be the bit of American hunting culture that has that traditional timelessness to it. Is that fair? Yes. Yeah. And, and what is neat, I don't know if you've shot behind pointers. Have you guys shot behind pointers before? Do you know, I've never done it. And, okay. and as you say, the, the point Sean was just making is bang on. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just very different. We, we grew up or, uh, the past few years, we've only had flushers, but having a pointer, it is, there's just something different about 
oh, you know, Duke's on point, everybody gather around, but you don't know where the birds are going to flush. And that's what is exciting about it. And you don't know if there's going to be 12 birds in there or just two. Um, so it it is a level of excitement that's that's different, I think, and really you know, just uh, intoxicating, actually. Well, so Sarah posted a scribehound piece with photographs from their day on on the quail in, I think it was, in, yeah, it was in Georgia. And Arizona. I, mean, I think it was Arizona. Oh, it was Arizona. Yeah. I mean, if that, you don't, I say I posted about it, actually, you, if you need an excuse to subscribe to scribehound, Sarah's photos are a reason enough by themselves. Go and, Absolutely. if you're not subscribed already, go and subscribe because Sarah's pictures are unbelievable and that looks like an incredible day i'm yeah. desperate to go and do that and a very cool little dog she was hunting with yeah the boykin, boykin. yeah have you seen them chris you know you don't see all the articles like i do i know i have seen it i was actually just racking my brains i me- i do remember the photos but i don't remember the dog a boykin spaniel it's a, an american breed looks a bit like it's got some cocker in it for sure uh and and a bunch of other stuff i guess and yeah i think sarah was fairly smitten that said sarah she falls in love with a new dog every week, I reckon. How popular is quail hunting versus the other types of hunting that you have? Very, very popular. Pretty popular. Yeah, especially in the southern United States. And uh, out west, you can do pheasant. So that's also in South Dakota. You know, you can go pheasant hunting. That's very popular. And, and are these more organized venues that, that do this? Or is this still public land? We know roughly what's happening. Or is it? Is this becoming a bit more like the UK? It's a mix of both. I mean, there's plenty of fabulous properties, especially as you head further west and further south, um, you know, where it is organized. And, you know, this is why you'll be hunting today. And here's your guide. But there is public land throughout the United States. And, you know, where, where Sarah and Simon were hunting was, was public land, uh, wild birds. So, so they're yeah. all entirely wild. And do you get released quail as yes. well? The, the the place where Liz was last week, they do early release and then they'll top off. Um, and then there's a mix of wild birds in there as well. It's it's pretty rare to find a, an all wild place. Yeah. Right. So they're, they're just supplementing. And, and you're saying supplementing early yes. like we do. They do both. They'll do an early release and then they will supplement throughout the season. Maybe every two or three weeks, they'll release some birds. And they've got food and cover. They're, you know, they're they're acclimated and sporty. And and I was debating with a friend the other day. I can't remember who about this, saying like, because in in the UK, topping up during the season is is a big no no. But like, we were just arguing, why is that? And, and it took me a while to sort of come up with lots of really good reasons because we were looking at it from an environmental point of view, which is. The more birds on the ground for a longer period of time, especially on bigger shoots, the more damage that's going to occur. And if you're topping up, well, you're doing less damage. So I was thinking, hmm. The the counter to that, though, Chris, is who are the people who are topping up if they're topping up? I don't think it's the little shoots. (laughs) I feel that they're just releasing twice as many as they otherwise would. No, 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 of course we were talking about it in the context of the shoots that are releasing lots and harming the environment. What could you do about it to reduce it? And if you did that, you would actually reduce the harm, which is a conundrum. Yeah. I guess what you could do on a big estate is you could, um, you could shoot one half of the estate early in the season and, and, and release the birds on the other half of the estate a bit later on to, to bring your season through like 
It's like two shoots. Yeah, yeah. effectively have two. They shoots. do that in yeah. Spain quite a bit. Yeah, in in the one place where you shoot in Spain, they do two early releases, but they're staggered, and then they leave the second part of the estate for later in the season. Do you think that the birds will fly as strong if they're released later and then shot? So it depends. So partridge, uh, you know, the the time on the ground is is a lot less and has a lot less impact than than pheasants. If you're topping up, if if people top up over here, if they're known, if they're caught doing it, I suppose it's nearly always partridge, um, and so it has less of an impact. Um, because Spain obviously do it in a number of different ways. They're out on the day, out like a week before or out a month before and they've got all sorts of different ways it's just it's different cultural approaches isn't it well it's cultural and then it's business as well i mean we we've we've gravitated towards shoots in spain that run it the way it's run in britain um you know there but there are some that yeah they'll release the day before which saves saves them a lot in feed cost you know it's i don't like i think uh, I think you're noticing that. Yeah. If, if you've shot a lot in the UK, you're knowing that's happening, and it's not the same, and it's a bit, it's a bit. Uh, the other thing that we have here in the states, in the in the northern states, uh, is rough grouse shooting, and just like the red grouse, mm. they are a hundred percent wild, as with our woodcock, um, which are you know migratory like yours. But um, you you can't raise a grouse in captivity; it won't. It doesn't survive. So same as same as a red grouse, and that's very popular in New England, Michigan, Minnesota. Uh, we have a little bit here in Pennsylvania still, um, in the northern part of the state. But that's very very popular, just like the quail hunting. So sorry, you've just mentioned woodcock. So if your woodcock are migrating, where are they going to? Uh, they're like way northern Canada, and then they'll go down into Mexico, you know, through Texas and Mexico. And they're, the North American woodcock looks identical to the Eurasian woodcock, but it's about two-thirds of the size. Oh, really? Yeah, they're, they're not quite as small as a snipe, but over here I explain it that it's a baseball versus a softball, but that means absolutely nothing to you guys because you don't play either sport. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Fascinating. Very interesting. We do have something called a tower shoot here in the states which they are released that day and i don't know if you've heard of that because i when i talk to uh, people from the uk they say don't you shoot them out of cannons no i have never seen that but maybe on youtube there is a clip of that somewhere (laughs) i've definitely heard of the pheasant cannon you know what i did want (laughs) turkey i did want to i did want to ask this but I actually wondered whether it's just so awkward that I didn't want to ask it. Um, it's okay. Because uh, um, so when my dad was uh, working at Purdy, uh, he used to go over to a number of places, not a million miles from where you guys are. And he told me one story once. I almost, I almost feel awkward even repeating it. Go for it. Uh, We've heard it about. <laughs> I'm sure, genuinely, like the catapult of a cock pheasant coming out it's sort of flung out and isn't necessarily like upright finds its way and then carries on flying okay it, have you heard I of haven't this heard well of not, that. The not the catapult 
Okay, okay, I'm really glad. I'm really glad. I'm really glad because I it's not just a story. It genuinely happened somewhere. It, but, I'm sure it and did. It, and they were all very normal with it. My dad was standing there going like, "What's happening?" I, I heard of um turkeys being put in a cannon. Turkeys in a cannon. Well, it's, so it's like a slingshot. So it's see, I can't imagine that cuz the way I've seen it is I've seen it in a couple ways and the the tower is tall and the birds are brought up in a big box and then they're kind of thrown off the top of a tower by somebody who just picks them up. Maybe three people are just kind of throwing them and then there's a circle around the tower and people are shooting you know, as they just go by up high. So very similar. Kind of like a kind of like box pigeon was. If yes. You, if you've seen box pigeon, which yeah. was an Olympic sport until 1920. Something. Yeah, it actually isn't dissimilar to that because those were, you know, sprung up in the air. Um, but it's there's also, you know, some places they call it a continental shoot and they use a topography, and it's like a Columbine shoot where people are actually throwing the birds. Yeah. Um, it can be done. It can, it can be done well or it can be done poorly. One interesting thing about the tower shoots is, and it, and it works for them because. Uh, you don't have a line of guns, you have a circle of guns. So it doesn't matter where the birds fly, they're going to be going over a peg. Yeah. And and, and someone's someone's on yes. the top of the tower. Mm-hmm. That sounds yeah. like the Very worst well job Very well-paid job, I should think. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Well, people, we go there to pick up some people who want to go overseas with us because they it's it's advertised as, you know, a British or a, you know, a British shoot. And uh, so they do sometimes wear all the breeks and they get dressed up. And so we'll go and they'll say to us, isn't this like it is overseas? And I'll say, well, it's, you know, it, not really. <laughs> it is, but it's, uh, you know, you have a lot more birds to see than just this. Well, in the one place we go, there's a continental <laughs> shoot. Um, it's run by a gentleman from Gloucestershire. He's a trained gamekeeper raises his own birds and, and it is a continental shoot, but he's got eight or nine different drives. So he, you know, you're moving around, there's a gun bus, there's pegs. He can adjust based on where the sun is, what the wind's doing. Um, and, and that's, 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 I think that's reasonably well done. I think it's very well done. I've definitely heard of more. We've actually seen a few on guns on pegs, like more sort of very traditional British shoots popping up in the US that are running basically the same way. And I know like a few of the keepers, that yeah. have gone out there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Is is that something you think you'll see more of in the US, or is that just you know doesn't really work in the same way? Or I think not there's the not demand, the demand. Maybe? I mean, the, the 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 one guy who's doing a really good job um, out at Blixton Company. I mean, that's a, from everything I hear is yeah. is authentically done, well presented, good birds, and plenty of them. Um, and, and he's an English trained game keeper as well. Um, but I think there's a demand issue. Um, I think there's also a big part of at least, you know, our friends who come with us. It's not just about the shooting. It's the culture. It's the community. It's it's yeah. everything. So and, and it's so expensive to run a shoot. It's for someone to make that investment like Lars has is a massive leap, leap of faith, I think. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and sure. a big sure. part of our job is to dispel the myths. Because there are some um, preconceived notions of this kind of shooting. And some people come up to us at uh, shows and they'll say, oh, this is this is too stuffy or it's too uh, 
pretentious or it's too expensive or, you know, they'll have their excuses or I like working with my dog. Uh, so I will, I'll never go. And I just said, you know, let's, how, how expensive do you think is expensive? And then we'll just talk through it and um, kind of, kind of dispel their fears a little bit. And uh, you know, Sean and I are very down to earth. And I think we run a trip, run trips that aren't pretentious and you don't have to wear the clothes at first. And, um, and there are plenty of dogs there to watch work. So we kind of, want to teach Americans about this style of shooting. And that's part of our job. Uh, it's just been absolutely fascinating because we've got a lot to learn from you as For well. Sure. Like, as you say, the, you know, the, the, the appetite for driven shooting isn't really there. I mean, walked up shooting in the UK is always in demand. It's just that it might be the geography that it's just not available because Either it's heavily farmland and they don't want you doing it or whatever, or it's just too densely populated or no one can really justify it. It's a headache, pain, you know, no thanks. We'll do a couple of driven days and at least add some value to the farm. I don't know why it is, but if there's what touch shooting on guns on pegs, it goes Good. always. So the demand is there, but... I, I, th- I think you're right, Chris. The, the problem is supply, not demand. Oh, yeah, Definitely. But I, but it's interesting if there was a supply of both in equal measure, I wonder what it would look like. I think actually shooting in the UK would just grow and grow and grow because it would be more accessible because the price isn't such an issue. Um, and you get more young people coming into it, hopefully, because it's affordable. Which is a big problem. Exactly. But we, we just it just doesn't seem to happen. And it, the people know there is the demand because if, if it, if they've got it, they know it sells and they can fill it up. But for some reason, that doesn't create more demand. And I think that is just because it can't happen. It, I think we don't, we can't have much more of it for some reason. Yeah. yeah if you're running a, a commercial shoot, right, you, you want to maximize your income from that commercial shoot. So you run driven days because you've still got to employ the keeper you've still got to send someone around with them they still need a company you still got the you know you've got a couple of dudes guys with dogs you, your costs are still there so it still costs you money to put the day on and it's potentially disturbing the the birds for your driven days you know a few of the more enlightened ones will do boundary days and that kind of stuff and then if it's a private thing then it's a little walked up syndicate uh, or you know a kind of walk one stand one affair or you know farms do a little bit with a few of their mates but it's invite only you know it's difficult to buy rough shooting i think you can probably get permission to go rough shooting and you can get it as part of a syndicate but people aren't selling it because the the numbers don't stack up when compared to doing it for a, a you know on a grander scale as a commercial thing but because people want the driven days. So if you own that farm, you're not going to sell it, not because the numbers don't stack up, because you want to protect your driven shooting. Yeah. But that comes back to the first point, which is that's not that's not what's occurring in the US. No, I think that's why we're seeing more and more estates opening up to the idea of walked up uh, grouse shooting in Scotland. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, with the with the with the problems that with the varying seasons and all that sort of stuff you i mean you you almost have to in a way and if nothing else if nothing else you're you're you know like where we do um the mcnab and the angus glens you know we're doing the grouse walked up uh and we actually do a walked up day in the middle of the week there but we're basically 
paying for the keepers to go out and do some grouse counts, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. We've never, ever discussed so much variation in, in shooting in one podcast. <laughs> no. Well, let's have some more. This has been fun. Yeah, it's been really fascinating. I've got a lot of thoughts knocking around in my head, but I don't know what I'm going to do about them other than think about Part them. two of the podcast. <laughs> Write them on Scribehound, Chris. <laughs> in and amongst looking after children and all the other jobs we've got to do. I will. Scribehound's been great, by the way. It's a, I mean, we rely a lot on... You know, the emails from Countryside Alliance and Basque to stay up on things that are happening. But Scribehout's been amazing for for just that, to, to get different opinions and, and updates on things that are happening. So, Well, thank you very much. That means an awful lot. It does, yeah. I must say, yeah. <laughs> Keeping in touch with the sort of the opinion and the political side and the, of what people really think quite fun right so as you know the way we finish these podcasts is with desert island shooting the extinction level event asteroid hits tomorrow your affairs are in order loved ones and enemies reconciled and dogs fed tomatoes watered your last day ever begins how and i think we should do this one by one liz all right i was prepared well not only was I prepared? Uh, I knew that you were going to ask me this question. I got asked this question just last week from somebody who had never, uh, who had, hadn't met us. They were quail hunting. It was a friend um, came along of somebody who comes on a trip, trip with us. And they asked me, what is your favorite trip that you've been on? And, um, and so I immediately thought, it's really not the place where I am. It's the people that I'm with. And um, the last time I was with this group was in Perthshire, Scotland. And we were in a cute little Scottish town. And um, we, you know, we had the bagpiper, we had, um, we went to Lindor's, the whiskey tasting or the distillery. We went next door to the Fiddler Band. And it just, and the people that we were with, and the shooting was great. The shooting was great. And we we had so much fun together when they left and I had to stay for another group. I, I had tears in my eyes. So if I could relive that whole week again, I would. Yeah. You, Fantastic. you described it well. That sounds awesome. So you're going back to do something you've already done. With people you've done it with before. Which is yes. lovely. Yes. Mine's not that far off from Liz's. And that was a fantastic week and a fantastic group. Um, but I'm I'm going to use a little more of the guns on pegs uh, technology and equipment. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of it. There's a lot of it. Um, I don't think I need the time machine, but, but maybe. Um, but I would start out. I think again in Perthshire, uh, staying in Dunkeld, I would get up early in the morning and I'd go down to the river for some salmon fishing. Maybe not salmon catching, but I'd go with my friend Mungo and uh, my other friend JTC. And my two sons, and we'd see how it went. And of course, we would is each it, catch. Is that, each ca- is that Mungo Ingleby? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Friend of mine too. Yeah, Great he's dude. a great guy. He's he's basically our head of operations in Scotland. Um, okay. Very very yeah. helpful. Yeah. Um, and so we'd go fishing, hopefully catch something, come back to the house for breakfast, and the, and the house is right on the river in the middle of town. It's 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 perfect actually. Um, have a quick breakfast. 
and then totally impossible, but I'd want to have a day. I don't think we could rely on or expect beaters to be there. So we would have, you know, all of our favorite guests that have been with us over the years, uh, but then also the, the hosts, the owners, the keepers, um, any beaters and pickers up who want to come along and do a driven day, uh, walk one, stand one, load one. I like what nice. you're doing here. Yes. Six drives. So it, everyone gets to do everything. And uh, we do six drives so everyone gets a chance because we would do half the day driven grouse, half the day pheasant and partridge. Whenever, and then when everyone's having, and we'll shoot through, and we'll have a lunch up on the hill, I'm going to sneak off with, uh, again, my friend JTC and uh, my friend Byron, who's from the Angus Glens, and my friend Patricio from Spain, and we're going to go up into the Highlands and stalk while everyone else is eating lunch. And so we're going to sort of, some of us are going to get a McNabb day, and my then after we've done that, uh, my I think we probably took a helicopter to get over there. So the helicopter comes back with my friend Sean in it, and so we're going to head back to Dunkeld, but we're going to skydive. Wow! Back to Dunkeld, and I've never done it. Sean, how old do you think Sean is? He's probably seventy three or seventy two. Yeah, he's yeah. done like seven hundred times. He's jumped out wow. of a plane. So I think I'd like to do that with him. Um, so then we'll parachute down, you know, lots of fanfare coming back into town on our parachutes, probably get hung up in a tree and then have dinner, um, by the river with a piper. And I think that would pretty much cap off the day and, and I'd have a glass of Edredauer. Very nice. Well, I think that's a front runner <laughs> for the best elaborate day. That's amazing. <laughs> Um, I have jumped out of an aeroplane before, um, and once was enough. You've done it as well, Chris. I love it. I honestly, <laughs> or was it cancelled? No, I, I had it cancelled a couple of times because of weather, but I got to do it. I I do that every week if I could. It's just such a it kicks you in for the week. I'd love that. Um, I like the idea you've incorporated it into a shoot day. It's niche, <laughs> but I'm loving it. <laughs> Yes, some some people turn up in helicopters. <laughs> exactly. Some people turn up in battered old pickup trucks, and some people turn up in a parachute. I think that's that's the new big boy move to turn up on a shoot day in in breeks, uh, <laughs> slip on your back, cartridge bag around your shoulder. Hi guys, uh, everyone, all right? Uh, uh, how was the journey? And like no mention. Where's my exactly. loader? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I love that. That's absolutely amazing. Sean, where was where was the time that you where are you gonna fit in going into a cold plunge? Because that's also what Sean is known for is if there is a piece of water, if there's a little bit of water on wherever we're shooting, usually when we're at lunch, he is not there and he has jumped into this said very cold pond or stream. <laughs> well the Tay's right there. Yeah, we could do that. You could start I, and finish could. in the Tay because you went salmon fishing first off. You get in and then you finish by parachuting straight back into it. And that's the end of it. Perfect. <laughs> that's a good idea. Very good. That's amazing. Oh, it's been so good having you guys on. So good. Thank you guys so much for joining us. It's been brilliant. Yeah. Thanks for having oh, us. Thanks this for having really us. Fun. This was really fun.
And I've never been interviewed before. I mean, we did a lot of interviews or have done a lot of interviews. Uh, and Liz, you were on a break in the action, which is a great name for a podcast. They, so but were I've never been on... interviewed before. I, I was on that one I as well. One yeah. Of you, yeah. George. Yeah. You George was. Yeah. 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 But no, really enjoyed it. I was a little nervous and uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Great. Well, it's an absolute pleasure having you. Right. So before we go. All that remains for me to say is there is a final reminder that you can get your hands on a pair of the very exclusive Guns on Pegs podcast shooting sock garters by sending us your shooting dilemmas for us to resolve or by sending us your unpopular opinions or by sharing your favourite drive names and the stories behind them. Just drop us an email to pod at gunsonpegs.com and if we read it out in the next episode or any future episodes, we will send you some garters. We will be back in a couple of weeks' time, but until then... Thanks very much for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye.